Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 33, Tesla Goes West, 1899. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tesla, The Life and Times. Last time, we watched as Tesla's experiments and ambition finally outgrew the confines of a small Manhattan laboratory. In this episode, episode 33, a very auspicious number given Tesla's obsession with the number three, it's only fitting that we join Tesla as he takes a momentous professional leap and heads west to Colorado Springs to build the experimental station that he believed would allow him to finally understand the fundamental principles needed to make his world wireless system work. But before we get to that, some other business. So first, a couple of really interesting articles came across my path recently, and since they're somewhat related to the content of this podcast, I thought I'd share. One article is about a new, never-before-seen crystalline mineral discovered in, wait for it, a chunk of fossilized lightning. If you were today years old when you learned that there was such a thing as fossilized lightning, well, you're not alone. I don't know if Tesla knew about fossilized lightning, but I'm sure he would have been fascinated. And the other article is about the Westinghouse Company, still going strong after more than a century. Westinghouse is still in the electricity business, but now in the form of nuclear reactors. They've just debuted a small nuclear reactor that can power 300,000 homes. And I've also seen other articles recently about the boom... Hmm, maybe boom isn't the right word to use when talking about nuclear power. The, um, rise, yeah, there you go, of small nuclear reactor technology and startups. Particularly in the United States, the regulatory regime that has governed nuclear power looks like it may be changing. Whereas it was set up to regulate large centralized power plants like the one Homer Simpson works in, new regulations are in the works to make smaller scale plants for localized power generation more feasible and affordable. This will be particularly important as the current generation of nuclear plants begins to age out of their useful life, and will make nuclear power a bigger part of the energy mix in North America, which, given that it's a carbon-free power source, will help with meeting emission goals to fight climate change. And I can't help but notice an interesting parallel with the War of the Currents. Whereas the large, centralized AC power generation systems won out in that battle, perhaps this new generation of small nuclear reactors will mean that while we'll stick with AC power, we're back to something more akin to Edison's distributed generation scheme, where power is generated by stations much closer to the end user, as was the case for his DC system. At least until we crack cold fusion and we all have dishwasher-sized fusion reactors in our homes, like they do in Star Trek. Fascinating. I recommend both articles, and you can find them in the show notes on the show's website at teslapodcast.com. And speaking of the show's website, if you've tried recently to visit the show's website and noticed that it was unavailable, well, that's because I was informed by my hosting provider that they had disabled the site because it was infected with malware. Now, as someone who in his day job actually writes quite a bit about cybersecurity and all the do's and don'ts of protecting yourself from things like malware, I will admit, <laughs> it's not a good look. How incredibly embarrassing. I take some comfort from what my hosting provider told me, however, which is that they caught the malware before it could infect anyone's machine, and that the whole thing isn't exactly my fault, since the malware came via an update to one or another of the WordPress plugins I use on my site. Those are supposed to be secure, but given that they are also free plugins, well, you get what you pay for. 
The good news is that after some code wrangling, everything appears to be up and running and malware-free again. My apologies to anyone who wasn't able to access the site, and especially to Kristen and her husband who reached out via email looking to get access to the show notes. I think I told her, give me a few days to fix it, and that ended up being more like a few weeks, so yeah, sorry about that. Speaking of people reaching out, a number of people were kind enough to post ratings and reviews or send me emails since the last episode. Over on Apple Podcast, Chucky Lee, Kimmy12334 Bracket 5, and Daba2014 gave us five stars, as did Ikablog Crane, great handle by the way, who said, well-researched, great pacing, and of course, Tesla and all his weird magnificence. And Deck6701 from the Netherlands, who says, I knew next to nothing about Nikola, only a few myths. Very enjoyable way to learn more about the human side of a so-called genius. Thank you all. Deck, my wife's whole family on both sides is Dutch, so it's great to have listeners in the Netherlands. Over on Facebook, Eric Munson recommended the podcast, saying, Excellent podcast on my personal hero Nikola Tesla and the era in which he lived. Unlike a lot of books and articles on the great inventor, it strips away much of the glossy varnish, which is common when we try to memorialize a person or an era. It helps reveal who Tesla really was, a brilliant, complicated, and flawed human who had amazing ideas that changed and continues to change the world. Well done. Thank you, Eric. Stripping away the myths about Tesla and making the case for who the man really was was the whole reason I wanted to do this podcast, so it's really gratifying to hear that that's coming across to listeners. And via email, thanks to Michael Kulota, who emailed to say that he listens to the show on his commute. Your Tesla podcast is something else, he says. I'm hooked. I've always been intrigued by Tesla and got a couple of books on him, but never read them. So much better to listen to your podcast. Good going and keep it up. Thanks, Michael. Jay Rollins was kind enough to email, saying, Thank you for making this podcast. I'm working on a Tesla story with my writing partner, and this has been our number one resource for historical insight so far. I binged the whole show and plan on starting over to take notes. Thanks, Jay. Jay, as it turns out, is a talented illustrator and comic book artist who has some great samples of his work on his website at jrollinsart.com. I, for one, hope that he and his partner are working on a Tesla-themed comic book. Jason Hines from the Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta, Georgia, got in touch to say, Just wanted to thank you for your podcast. Wrapping up this show now, hope it continues. And then he included a link to a production called Tesla vs. Edison, a puppet show about the rivalry between the two inventors. I was able to find a one-minute trailer for the show on YouTube, and this thing looks incredible. Here's a bit about the show from the press release I found over on the Center for Puppetry Arts website, and I'll include the link to both the video and the press release in the show notes so you can check this thing out for yourself. The Center for Puppetry Arts is proud to announce the world premiere of Tesla vs. Edison, Created by resident puppet builder and designer Jason Hines, this new and original production follows two of history's greatest genius inventors, Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison, as they clash over their disparate visions of the future. The cast features the talents of Jason Hines, Alex Burnett, Sarah Beth Hester, and Jake Krakowski. Known as overt puppetry, the performers will be visible during the performance as they interact as actors, puppeteers, and lab assistants to the famous inventors. And this is from a review in The Emory Wheel, the student-run newspaper from Emory University. Quote, The show begins with the four human performers entering the stage and clocking in for work using time cards. They rhythmically tinker away at machines before playing with various puppet parts such as legs and a head. Mark Twain, a historical friend of both Edison and Tesla, narrates the story, beginning with Edison's invention of the phonograph and following Tesla's work as Edison's lab assistant and inventor for the domineering entrepreneur Westinghouse. 
The story reaches its climax as the conflict between Tesla's alternating current and Edison's direct current comes to a head, ending in Tesla's greatest success, turning Niagara Falls into an alternating current power plant. The linchpin of Tesla versus Edison was the beautifully crafted puppets and the way the puppeteers utilized them to tell the story. The show included rod puppets, handheld puppets, one-meter-tall half-life-size puppets, and body puppets, which are costume-like puppets worn by the puppeteer. The different sizes of puppets enhanced both the aesthetic presentation and story. The puppets would not have been so emotive if not for the puppeteer's incredible work. The show utilized full-view manipulation, a form of puppetry, in which puppeteers are on stage visibly seen manipulating the puppets. Thus, the performers were not just unseen puppeteers in the background. Their presence on the stage fully enhanced the artistic experience. Tesla vs. Edison is not just a whimsical retelling of Tesla and Edison's lives. It deconstructs how we tell their story and, by extension, how history is written. In reality, history is not an immutably existent narrative. It is collaboratively created, shaped, and given life by those who tell it. Tesla vs. Edison calls attention to the fiction of history, demonstrating how historical figures become characters for storytellers to manipulate no differently than a puppeteer animates a puppet. End quote. Does that not sound amazing? Jason, I hope you're listening. I can't seem to find the original email for how you got in touch, but thank you so much for letting me know that this production existed. I'm only sorry that I didn't find out about it earlier uh, in its run because I would have been on a plane in a heartbeat to go see this thing. If this show is ever mounted again by you or by anyone anywhere, please let me know ASAP and I will be there opening night guaranteed. This thing sounds fantastic. And if there is a recording of this thing available anywhere online, please, please, please send me a link, particularly if it's public, because I'm sure I'm not the only one listening who would love to see this show. And finally, J-Man reached out via email to say he was enjoying the show and to ask some questions both about Tesla as well as my experience with Kickstarter. And speaking of Kickstarter, I'm thrilled to announce my newest Kickstarter, one I'm running all by myself this time, for The Year's Best Canadian Fantasy and Science Fiction Volume 1. As I've mentioned before, one of the many hats I wear is as a science fiction author, and about six months ago it occurred to me that while Canadians routinely win or are nominated for the highest prizes in the science fiction and fantasy field, prizes like the Hugo, the Nebula, the Locus Award, and while despite our relatively small population, we are, as a nationality, second only to the Americans in the number of nominations and wins that we get on average each year, there's no showcase anthology of the best short fiction the Canadian science fiction and fantasy community publishes every year. And, as the saying goes, if you want something done and done right... So, I'm running this Kickstarter to fund what I hope will be the first in an annual Year's Best Anthology series. I'll be acting as the volume editor and publisher through my own imprint, Ansible Press. So, if you're a fan of science fiction and fantasy, or just of great stories well told, or if you know of anyone who is or if you just want to help support one of the things I do in addition to this podcast, I hope you'll consider backing The Year's Best Canadian Fantasy and Science Fiction Volume 1 on Kickstarter. There are pledge levels to hit every budget. There are ebooks and paperbacks, and even a large print edition available. We've hit almost all of our stretch goals, so we're going to have the maximum amount of fiction, 125,000 words that we could cram into the book, and you'll even get a whole additional collection of my award-winning short stories as a bonus for no additional charge if you back the campaign. And if you just want to throw a couple of bucks my way as a thank you for this podcast but don't want the book, well, there's even an option to do that. And for those of you listening in the US, UK, and EU, hey, Deck 6701, I see you there in Holland, buddy. 
Remember, this campaign is running in Canadian dollars. So with your positive exchange rates against our funny money, it's like I'm practically giving this book away. To sign up, you can follow the link in this episode's show notes over on the I'm almost certain it's working now show website at teslapodcast.com, or you can find the campaign directly on kickstarter.com by searching for the title, Year's Best Canadian Fantasy and Science Fiction, or by searching my last name, Kotowich, K-O-T-O-W-Y-C-H, and I think if you just type in Year's Best, it ought to pop up. The campaign runs until Thursday, June 29th, 2023. Thanks in advance to any of you who are interested in participating. And if you're listening to this podcast at some point in the future, after Thursday, June 29th, 2023, and would like to get your hands on the book, it will be available through bookstores and online book retailers in November 2023. Okay then, why don't we get down to the rest of the podcast, shall we? As the events of this episode and next episode both overlap with the year 1899, let's take a quick look at some of the notable historical events from just the first half of 1899. On January 4th, U.S. President William McKinley's declaration of December 21st, 1898, proclaiming a policy of benevolent assimilation in the Philippines as a United States territory, is announced in Manila, angering independence activists who had just finished fighting against Spanish rule, only to see it replaced by American rule. On January 9th, George F. Hoare, a U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, speaks out in the Senate against American expansion into the Philippines. The text of his speech is sent by cable to Hong Kong at a cost of $4,000, nearly $150,000 today, and is later cited by Ambassador John Barrett as an incitement to Filipino attacks on U.S. troops. On January 12th, the Forest Hall, a 1,900-ton, three-masted ship with 13 crew and five apprentices, sailing down the English Channel from Bristol, gets into trouble when she loses her rudder in a nighttime gale several miles east of Lynmouth. The storm prevented a launch from the harbor, so the Lynmouth lifeboat station decided to carry their 10-ton rescue boat 15 miles, that's 24 kilometers, overland, and a climb of 1,423 feet, or 434 meters, above sea level, so that it could be launched at Portlock Weir and effect a rescue. Six men were sent ahead to widen some parts of the road that were too narrow, while about 100 people, helped by 18 horses pulling a carriage, hauled the boat up the 25-degree incline of Countisbury Hill. At the top, most of the people, including the women and children, turned back, leaving just 20 men to control the boat as it descended another 25-degree hill into Portlock. When a road proved too narrow because of a wall, the owner let the men take down the corner of his house so that they could pass. Lower down, a road had been washed away by the sea, so another detour was necessary. The lifeboat finally reached the sea at 6.30 a.m. on the 13th of January, a journey of 11 hours accomplished mostly overnight in the dark. After this, the rescue team then had to row for an hour into the storm to reach the forest hall. The lifeboat then stood by, the crew rowing continuously to hold a safe position, until daylight when two tugs arrived and managed to get a new rope across to the ship. Some of the lifeboatmen went on board to help raise the anchors, as the crew were too tired to do it by themselves. This little flotilla of ships finally arrived in port at about 5 a.m. on the 14th of January, more than 36 hours after the lifeboat crew had set out on their rescue mission. On January 15th, the name of Puerto Rico, recently captured during the Spanish-American War, is changed by the new U.S. military government to, and I'm not making this up, Puerto Rico. I'm sorry to say it that way, but I can't manage to say it any other way. Puerto Rico. The name of the island will not be changed back until May 17th, 1932. 
On January 19th, future film producer and the G in MGM Studios, Samuel Goldwyn, arrives in the United States at the age of 16 under his birth name, Samuel Gelfis. On January 21st, the Malolos Constitution is ratified by the revolutionary government of the Philippines in opposition to U.S. control of the islands. Two days later, on January 23rd, Emilio Aguinaldo is sworn in as president of the First Philippine Republic. On January 26th, U.S. Representative George Henry White of North Carolina, the only African-American in Congress at the time, delivers his first major speech, speaking out against disenfranchisement of black voters and proposing that the number of representatives from a U.S. state should be based on the number of persons of voting age who actually cast ballots, rather than population. Also on the 26th, German inventor Karl Ferdinand Braun, who will later share the 1909 Nobel Prize in Physics with Guillermo Marconi, receives British patent number 1899-1862 for his wireless radio invention, Telegraphy Without Directly Connected Wire. On January 27th, Camille Genazzi of France becomes the first man to drive an automobile more than 80 kilometers per hour, almost breaking the 50 mile per hour barrier when he reaches an unprecedented speed of 80.35 kilometers per hour, that is 49.93 miles per hour, in his CGA dog cart race car. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious... Genazzi's speed is more than 20% faster than the January 17th mark of 66.65 kilometers an hour, that's 41.41 miles per hour, set by Gaston de Chazelou-Labat, who we mentioned last episode. On February 2nd, the participants of the Australian Premier's Conference, held in Melbourne, agree that Australia's new capital, Canberra, should be located between Sydney and Melbourne, mainly because Sydney and Melbourne can't play nicely with one another. On February 3rd, Kansas University's new college basketball team, coached by the game's inventor, Dr. James Naismith, plays its first game and is defeated by the YMCA team of Kansas City, Kansas, 16-5. As you can see, games back in the day were a little lower scoring than they are today. On February 4th, the Philippine-American War begins as hostilities break out in Manila. The next day, February 5th, the first major battle of the war concludes with the capture by the U.S. of the San Juan River Bridge that connects Manila and San Juan. U.S. Army General Arthur MacArthur Jr., yes, that is his real name, directs troops of the U.S. Army 8th Corps to victory over Filipino troops. In the two-day battle, 55 U.S. soldiers and 238 Filipino soldiers are killed. Arthur MacArthur Jr. is the father of famed American World War II General Douglas MacArthur, whose own career was so intimately tied to the fate of the Philippines during the war in the Pacific. In addition to their both being promoted to the rank of general, though the son would actually outrank the father, Douglas was only one of five men ever promoted to the rank of five-star general during World War II, Arthur and Douglas MacArthur also share the distinction of having been the first father and son to each be awarded a Medal of Honor. And those are your two fun facts for the day. Coincidentally, one of my very favorite podcasts that I've mentioned here on the show before, Everything Everywhere Daily, recently released an episode titled Father and Son Medal of Honor Recipients in Honor of Father's Day. The episode looks at both Arthur and Douglas MacArthur and goes into more detail about both their lives and careers. If you're interested, it's really fascinating, so check out that episode over on Everything Everywhere Daily. On February 12th, the Great Blizzard of 1899 strikes the east coast of the United States, causing sub-zero temperatures as far south as southern Florida for two days and destroying the citrus fruit crop that year. On February 13th, in New York, the White Star ocean liner SS Germanic, already laden with ice and snow from its voyage from Liverpool, becomes even more weighed down after disembarking its passengers when the Great Blizzard strikes. 
With 3.6 million pounds, that's 1.6 million kilograms, of added snow weight, the ship lists sideways and additional weight enters cargo doors that had been opened for refueling. The Germanic sinks and remains on the bottom of New York Harbor for more than a week while salvaging goes on, then requires refurbishing for three months but becomes operational again. On February 14th, voting machines are approved by the U.S. Congress for use in federal elections. On February 25th, in an accident at Grove Hill, Harrow, London, Edwin Sewell becomes the world's first driver of a petrol-driven vehicle to be killed. His passenger, Major James Richer, dies of injuries three days later. On March 3rd, Guillermo Marconi conducts radio beacon experiments on Salisbury Plain in England and notices that radio waves are being reflected back to the transmitter by objects they encounter, one of the earliest steps in the development of radar. On March 11th, a wireless distress signal is sent for the first time by a patrol boat to aid the endangered British cruiser Elbe. The Morse code distress signal is heard by the lighthouse near Ramsgate Lifeboat Station, which sends a lifeboat to the rescue, although they didn't have to march this one over land. Also on March 11th, Valdemar Junger files the patent application for the first alkaline battery and receives Swedish patent number 11132. On March 18th, Phoebe, the ninth known moon of the planet Saturn, is discovered by U.S. astronomer William Pickering from analysis of photographic plates made by a Peruvian observatory seven months earlier. It is the first discovery of a satellite photographically. On March 27th, Guillermo Marconi successfully transmits a radio signal across the English Channel. On March 31st, Malolos, capital of the First Philippine Republic, is captured by American forces. On April 4th, Cuba's General Assembly voted to disband the Cuban army and dissolve itself in order to accept U.S. sovereignty over the island. On April 7th, the shootout at Wilson Ranch, the last major gunfight of the Wild West era, takes place in Tombstone, Arizona. Brothers William Halderman and Thomas Halderman, who belonged to a wealthy and influential family of Texas pioneers, are accused of cattle wrestling and kill two lawmen sent to arrest them. They will later be hanged for their crimes. And on May 26th, the guns of the British warship HMS Scylla, commanded by Captain Percy Scott, hit their targets 56 out of 70 times after Percy and his crew solved the problem of aiming a ship's cannon on rolling seas. Famous births in 1899 include... On January 12th, Paul Hermann Müller, known as Pauli Müller, was born. A Swiss chemist, Müller received the 1948 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his 1939 discovery of the insecticidal qualities and use of DDT in the control of insects that spread diseases such as malaria and yellow fever. Unfortunately, the side effects of DDT on wildlife, particularly birds of prey, marine birds, and songbirds, including the bald eagle, brown pelican, peregrine falcon, and osprey, were devastating and not understood for many decades. Alphonse Gabriel Capone, better known as Al and sometimes known by the nickname Scarface, was born on January 17th. An American gangster and businessman, he gained notoriety during the Prohibition era as the co-founder and boss of the Chicago outfit. His seven-year reign as a crime boss ended when he went to prison for 11 years at the age of 33 for, of all things, tax evasion. On January 20th, Kenjiro Takayanagi, a Japanese television development pioneer, is born. He would have a hand in the development of black-and-white television, color television, and videotape recorders. On January 30th, Max Thieler, South African virologist, is born. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1951 for developing a vaccine against yellow fever in 1937, becoming the first African-born Nobel laureate. On February 27th, Charles Best, Canadian medical scientist and one of the co-discoverers of insulin, is born. 
Frederick Banting, Charles Best, and their associate biochemist James Collip shared the patent for insulin, which they sold to the University of Toronto for $1. In 1923, the Nobel Prize Committee honored Banting and J.J.R. McLeod with the Nobel Prize in Medicine for the discovery of insulin, ignoring Best and Collip. Banting chose to share half his prize money with Best. The key contribution by Collip was recognized in the Nobel speech of McLeod, who also gave one half of his prize money to Collip. In 1972, the Nobel Foundation officially conceded that omitting Best was a mistake. In fact, Best was not considered because he was never nominated. Nomination for a Nobel Prize can only be made by certain individuals, including former recipients of the prize, and his central role, along with Banting, was simply not known to those who had the ability to make the nomination. Best was subsequently nominated for the 1950 Nobel Prize in Physiology, based on his work on choline and heparin. On March 27th, Gloria Swanson, American actress and producer, is born. She first achieved fame acting in dozens of silent films in the 1920s, and was nominated three times for the Academy Award for Best Actress most famously for her 1950 return in Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard, which also earned her a Golden Globe Award. On March 28th, August Anheuser-Busch Jr., the American founder of the Anheuser-Busch Brewery Company, was born. Building the Anheuser-Busch companies into the largest brewery in the world by 1957, August served as company chairman from 1946 to 1975. He bought the St. Louis Cardinals baseball franchise in 1953 and remained owner until his death. The Cardinals inducted him into the Team Hall of Fame in 2014. On March 29th, Lavrenti Beria, Soviet official and the longest-lived and most influential of Stalin's secret police chiefs, is born. Beria was a real piece of work. Following the Soviet invasion of Poland in 1939, he was responsible for ongoing purges such as the Katyn massacre of 22,000 Polish officers and officials, orchestrated the genocide of minorities in the Caucasus and in what is now Chechnya, and Beria expanded the Gulag labor camps, oversaw secret detention facilities for scientists and engineers, and his ruthless efficiency while overseeing the Soviet atomic bomb project saw the project completed in under five years. After Stalin's death in March 1953, and a brief role as part of a kind of Soviet triumvirate with Malenkov and Molotov, Beria was deposed in a coup d'etat by Nikita Khrushchev in June 1953. He was tried for treason and other offenses, sentenced to death, and executed on the 23rd of December 1953. I keep recommending the movie The Death of Stalin on this podcast, and I will do so again here. While a very dark comedy, the role of Beria is portrayed with genuine menace and palpable evil by actor Simon Russell Beale. Beria was a genuine monster. On April 22nd, Vladimir Nabokov, Russian-American writer, is born. Nabokov wrote his first nine novels in Russian between 1926 and 1938 while living in Berlin, but it was once he moved to the United States, where he began writing in English, that he achieved international acclaim. Nabokov's 1955 novel Lolita ranked fourth on Modern Library's list of the 100 best 20th century novels, and his 1962 novel Pale Fire ranked 53rd on the same list. His memoir, Speak Memory, published in 1951, is considered amongst the greatest nonfiction works of the 20th century, placing eighth on Random House's ranking of 20th century works. Nabokov was a seven-time finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction, he was also an expert lepidopterist, which is the scientific study of moths and butterflies, and a composer of chess problems. Edward Kennedy Duke Ellington was born on April 29, 1899. A renowned jazz pianist and composer, Duke Ellington led his eponymous jazz orchestra from 1923 to the end of his life. A master at writing miniatures for the 3-minute 78 RPM recording format, Ellington wrote or collaborated on more than 1,000 compositions. Later, partnering for 30 years with composer-arranger-pianist Billy Strayhorn, the duo began composing extended compositions in addition to short pieces. 
Duke Ellington is considered by many to be the most significant composer in the history of jazz. Famous deaths in 1899 include, on the 25th of February, German-born British telegraphy and news reporting entrepreneur Paul Julius Reuter dies. Born Israel Beer Josephat, and later titled as Baron von Reuter, the Baron was a reporter and media owner and the founder of the Reuters News Agency, which became part of the Thomson Reuters conglomerate in 2008. Many of Reuters' techniques for gathering and reporting news faster than rivals were innovations at the time. He transferred messages between Brussels and Aachen using homing pigeons, thus linking Berlin and Paris. Speedier than the post trains, pigeons gave Reuter faster access to financial news from the Paris Stock Exchange. Eventually, pigeons were replaced by a direct telegraph link. A telegraph line was under construction between Britain and Europe, so Reuter moved to London, renting an office near the Stock Exchange. In 1863, he privately erected a telegraph link to Crookhaven, the farthest southwest point of Ireland. On nearing Crookhaven, ships from the U.S. threw canisters containing news into the sea. These were retrieved by Reuters' agents and telegraphed directly to London, arriving long before the ships reached Cork. In 1872, Nazir al-Din Shah, the Shah of Persia, signed an agreement with Reuter that sold to this one man all railroads, canals, most of the mines, all of the government's forests, and all future industries of the country which is now Iran. All that in Reuters' hands. It has been called, quote, the most complete and extraordinary surrender of the entire industrial resources of a kingdom into foreign hands that has ever been dreamed of. Jeff Bezos, eat your heart out. The Reuter concession was immediately denounced by businessmen, clergy, and nationalists, and was quickly cancelled. Martha M. Place died on March 20, 1899, the first woman to die in the electric chair. Place was struck in the head by a sleigh at age 23. Her brother claimed that she never completely recovered and that the accident left her mentally unstable. Convicted of the murder of her stepdaughter, Ida Place, she was executed at Sing Sing Correctional Facility after the governor of New York and future U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt refused to commute Place's death sentence. And on April 7, 1899, Petrus Leonardus Reicha dies. A Dutch physicist and a professor in experimental physics at the University of Leiden, Reicha spent his scientific career exploring the physics of electricity and is known for the Reicha tube. The Reicha tube is a cylindrical tube with two open ends that, when a heat source is placed inside, turns heat into sound by creating a self-amplifying standing wave, a.k.a. a stationary wave, which we'll hear more about toward the end of this episode. It is an entertaining phenomenon in acoustics and is an excellent example of resonance. Now then, with all of that out of the way, where did we leave off last time? Yeah, well, what we need is a backer. What's that? Someone with money who's stupid. Oh, yes. I remember now. In August 1898, John Jacob Astor returned from his self-funded adventures in the Spanish-American War. The heir to a $100 million fortune, that's north of $3 billion in today's money, Colonel Astor, as he insisted that everyone call him after the war, was the great-grandson of John Jacob Astor, who had become rich first in the fur trade and then in New York City real estate. As one of the wealthiest families in America, the Astors ruled New York high society. I've mentioned the 400 previously, the creme de la creme of New York's social elite. Why were there 400, you ask? Because that's how many guests could fit into the ballroom of the New York home of Mrs. Astor, the colonel's mother. Educated at Harvard, when he graduated, Astor followed the family tradition and began investing in Manhattan real estate. 
Envious of the success that his cousin, William Waldorf Astor, was having with a new hotel, the Waldorf, Astor built his own luxury hotel right next door in 1897, because that's what insanely wealthy people with huge egos who make people call them Colonel do. And he named it the Astoria. The complex soon became known as the Waldorf Astoria, and at the time, it was the largest hotel in the world. The Colonel was also widely considered to be cold-hearted, humorless, weak-minded, and almost completely devoid of personality. Is it any wonder, then, that despite the colonel's return in August, Tesla put off going to see him until December 1898? Tesla spent the intervening months trying his best to raise funds for an expanded, scaled-up version of his system that had already outgrown his New York lab. He demonstrated his system in August 1898 for Prince Albert of Belgium, whom he had met previously in Paris, and Tesla secured a loan of $10,000, about $363,000 today, from a partner in the dry goods firm of Simpson and Crawford. But by December, Tesla had his sights set firmly on Astor. So why did Tesla think Astor was a good potential investor to court? Other than the vast fortune, I mean. Well, Astor was fascinated by science and technology. Working in a laboratory at the family estate at Ferncliffe, Astor tinkered with several inventions, including a bicycle brake, a vibratory disintegrator used to produce gasoline from peat moss, and a pneumatic machine for improving dirt roads. In 1894, he published a science fiction novel, A Journey in Other Worlds, which described life in the year 2000 and travel to Saturn and Jupiter. In this novel, Astor speculated on new technologies such as a worldwide telephone network, solar power, and even a plan to modify the weather by adjusting the Earth's axial tilt. Astor was also familiar with Tesla's work since he was a director of the Cataract Construction Company, the firm that had built the Niagara Power Plant. Astor presented Tesla with a copy of his novel in February 1895, and Tesla thanked him for, quote, an interesting and pleasant memento of our acquaintance. And if you remember back to episode 30, Astor was an enthusiastic backer of a fraudulent inventor from Philadelphia named John Ernst Worrell Keeley, a man who claimed to have discovered a vaporic or etheric force which could provide power to a motor. Remember, it was not for nothing that Astor was considered weak-minded by his contemporaries. It must have been frustrating for Tesla that a fraud like Keeley was getting Astor's backing. Surely, Tesla must have thought, Astor would want to fund him, too, since Tesla, at least, had a track record of success in invention and innovation. To get to the colonel, Tesla went through his wife, Ava. While the colonel was seen as dour, Ava was considered by many to be the most beautiful woman in America. Tesla relocated to the Waldorf Astoria in the fall of 1898, and combined with his regular dining at Delmonico's in order to be seen by the rich and powerful of New York, it's possible he was able to arrange to bump into the colonel and Eva from time to time. Cypher reports in his book that the three eventually got to dining together occasionally, and that Tesla was always careful to bring Eva a bouquet of flowers when they did. Eva, who was enthralled by the inventor's experiments, seemed to be on Tesla's side in getting her husband to fund his endeavors, but when the two men finally met alone in late 1898, Tesla still felt the need to apologize for not joining Astor on his adventures during the Spanish-American War. You'll recall from last episode that Astor had invited Tesla on his crusade, encouraging him to unleash his telatomaton torpedoes against the Spanish. Upon hearing Tesla's apology, though, the colonel told him not to worry. During the gunfire, Astor replied, I realized that your life was too precious to risk on such a trip. I see, however, from recent reports that you have been attacked after all, but it has been by reporters instead. I'm glad, Tesla quipped, that I am living in a place in which, though they can roast me in the papers, they cannot burn me at the stake. 
The ice thus broken, Tesla convened a meeting with Astor and two of his associates, Clarence McKay and Darius Ogden Mills, to showcase his progress with oscillators, fluorescent lights, and various patent applications. Tesla also marshaled articles from technical journals as well as reports from the Royal Society and Röntgen Society, and testimonials from eminent scientists like Sir William Crookes about the progress Tesla had made with his inventions. It is for a reason that I am often and violently attacked in the press, Tesla explained to the colonel. My inventions threaten a number of established industries. My teletomaton, for instance, opens up a new art which will sooner or later render large guns entirely useless, and will make impossible the building of large battleships, and will, as I have stated in my patent long before the Tsar's manifesto, compel the nations to come to an understanding for the maintenance of peace. Astor, while intrigued, was more skeptical. You are taking too many leaps for me, Astor said, causing his associates to also hit pause on their potential support. Let's stick to oscillators and cold lights. Let me see some success in the marketplace with these two enterprises before you go off saving the world with an invention of a different order, and then I will commit more than my good wishes. Tesla waited until the new year and then made a more direct pitch to Astor. Emphasizing his past successes, that he had, quote, brought to commercial perfection some important inventions which, even at the most conservative estimate, must be valued at several million dollars. Tesla said that in the past, Westinghouse had paid him 500000 for the AC polyphase system, and that Edward Dean Adams had invested 100000 to become a partner in his company, and that, quote, I am fully confident that the property which I have now in my hands will pay much better than this. Tesla's new system, he said, had reduced the need for expensive copper components to almost nothing. He could run 1,000 of his new lamps on the same amount of wire needed for just a single incandescent lamp and generate 5,000 times as much light in the process. Plus, there were Tesla's innovations in oscillators, wireless power transmission, wireless telegraphy and remote control, plus side products generated by his devices such as fertilizers and nitric acid condensed from the air, the production of ozone, cheap refrigeration, and cheap manufacture of liquid air. Given these facts, Tesla concluded, it was only a matter of time before GE or Westinghouse or some enterprising individual paid Tesla a handsome sum for the rights to such innovations, and wouldn't Colonel Astor prefer that those rights and the fortune that they would generate belong to him and not someone else? And so, really, Tesla's asking price of $1,000 per share, roughly $36,000 today, for an interest in his company was kind of a bargain if you think about it. Astor had one condition for his support, that Tesla's priority was to exploit his innovations in fluorescent lighting, to which Tesla quickly agreed, and then on January 10, 1899, Astor signed papers purchasing 500 shares of the Tesla Electric Company in exchange for $100,000 and a seat on the company's board. Advancing $30,000 to Tesla, Astor promptly headed to Europe for an extended holiday. Tesla immediately set to work refining his fluorescent lighting system. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Astor was out of the country, so naturally Tesla ignored his benefactor's wishes and instead turned back to his pursuit of wireless power. Someone with money who's stupid. After such an effort to wrangle investment out of Colonel Astor, why did Tesla ignore the deal he'd made? Was Tesla just a jerk? No. Well, not entirely. There's little doubt that Tesla felt he knew better than some mere money man what real potential for innovation was. So, an Astor or not, Tesla wasn't going to let the colonel boss him around. But pride and ego weren't the whole reason Tesla turned immediately back to wireless. That had to do, in part, with a young Italian that we've mentioned several times already, Guillermo Marconi. 
Tesla had been following developments with Marconi's wireless system and was growing concerned. From the start, Marconi sought to develop a system that could send telegraph messages wirelessly, and he focused on increasing the distance over which he could send them. In order to finance and promote his system, Marconi traveled to England in 1896 to take advantage of the business connections via his mother's family, the Jamesons of Jameson's Irish whiskey fame. So, you know, Marconi wasn't all bad. Marconi steadily improved his apparatus, and by the fall of 1898, he could send messages over distances of 80 to 100 miles. Unlike Tesla, who demonstrated his apparatus privately to friends, potential investors, and an occasional reporter, Marconi offered regular public demonstrations of his system. Such public demonstrations got the press in both England and America on Marconi's side, as soon reporters were touting Marconi's wireless telegraph as a breakthrough. This positive coverage of Marconi annoyed Tesla, since from his perspective, Marconi had done nothing new. As far back as 1890, Tesla had been experimenting with wireless apparatus, and in an 1893 lecture he had outlined how one could send messages over a distance. Careful to avoid using Marconi's name, Tesla complained in the Electrical Review in January 1899 that, quote, one cannot help admiring the confidence and self-possession of experimenters who put forth carelessly such views and who, with but a few days, not say hours, experience with the device, venture before scientific societies, apparently unmindful of the responsibility of such a step, and advance their imperfect results and opinions hastily formed. The sparks may be long and brilliant, the displays interesting to witness, and the audience may be delighted, but one must doubt the value of such demonstrations. The irony here, of course, is that you could easily put those same words in the mouths of Tesla's critics, who felt the same way about the flashiness of his demonstrations, but found actual achievement or application wanting in the inventor's works. That Tesla's comments were a thinly veiled attack on Marconi was lost on no one. Soon, New York gossip rag Town Topics poked fun at Tesla, taking the view that while Tesla was making promises, Marconi was getting results. Quote, Tesla, America's own and only non-inventing inventor, the scientist of the Demonico Calf and Waldorf Astoria Palm Garden, has been at it again. This time, the news of young Marconi's success in telegraphing through space-fired Tesla defeats hitherto undreamed of, and he filled columns in the Herald, which paper I much fear me inclines to help Tesla make a guy of himself, with profound droolings about volts and resistances and circuits and amperes and things and things. Tesla says he can do everything that Marconi has done, of course, he doesn't really do them, but that may be because he is afraid someone else may find out how they are done. He knows all about the theory and the practical machinery of Marconi's messages through miles of space and could prove it too, if old Bill Jones were alive. Indeed, the actual results of the methods of the two inventors show only this slight difference. Marconi telegraphs through space, and Tesla talks through space. Sick burn! Hey! Sorry, dude, but I gotta call a sick burn a sick burn when I see a sick burn. In March 1899, Marconi successfully sent a message from France across the channel to a receiver at the South Foreland Lighthouse in England. Not to be outdone, Tesla announced that he was prepared to send messages instantaneously around the world. As he boasted in the New York Journal, quote, The people of New York can have their private wireless communication with friends and acquaintances in various parts of the world. It will be no great wonder to have a cable tower with a balloon tethered to it that is now to have a telephone in your house. You will be able to send a 2,000-word dispatch from New York to London, Paris, Vienna, Constantinople, Bombay, Singapore, Tokyo, or Manila in less time than it takes now to ring up Central. By the spring of 1899, Tesla had all the elements he needed for his ideal wireless power system. 
He had perfected the circuitry needed to create a powerful high-voltage, high-frequency transmitter. He had discovered how to tune his transmitter and receivers by adjusting the capacitance and inductance, and he had become convinced that the atmosphere could serve as the return circuit for his system. But there remained research to be done. First, he had to figure out the laws of propagation of currents through the Earth and the atmosphere to ensure that his system could send power or messages from one point to another. Next, Tesla needed to build coils and capacitors capable of working at millions of volts to power a global system. And finally, knowing that he would need to deliver power or messages to specific users, Tesla sought to improve his methods of tuning, or as he put it, to perfect means for individualizing and isolating the energy transmitted. Having now promised worldwide wireless telegraphy in the press, Tesla knew that he had to deliver results. It was time, as the saying goes, to put up or shut up. So that's why he took Astor's money to build the plant he needed to work out the operating details of his wireless system. His laboratory, and indeed all of Manhattan, proved too confining for such endeavors. So Tesla took to heart Horace Greeley's famous advice to go west, young man. And in May 1899, he relocated to Colorado Springs, where he would live and work until January 1900. But before he left, there was one last middle finger to extend to his one-time bestie and hype man, T.C. Martin. After shipping his equipment to Colorado in the early spring of 1899, Tesla arranged an interview profiling him and his lab with the editor of the Electrical Review magazine, Charles W. Price, the chief rival of Martin and his publication, Electrical World. The interview was accompanied by sensational photographs from Dickinson Alley. Complete with a glowing description, no pun intended, of Tesla and his experiments, the article ran in the March 29, 1899 issue starting with a full-length portrait of the inventor grasping an illuminated basketball-sized wireless vacuum lamp, see the show notes at teslapodcast.com for a copy of this image, the essay described the evolution of Tesla's high-tension transformer, which resulted in Tesla's flat, spiral transmitting coil. This 8-foot transmitter, which looks like a sun wheel or a spider's web, allowed Tesla for the first time to generate two individualized vibrations, or tuned circuits, simultaneously, while also producing many millions of volts. Other prints depicted the flamboyant engineer transmitting high currents through his body to illuminate a variety of vacuum tubes, with one hand seeming to pluck a rod out of the midst of a spiral galaxy of blurred light and the other grasping a sparking circular high-tension coil. The operator's body was charged to a great potential. Again, see the show notes on the website for copies of these images. That little bit of petty publicity taken care of, it was finally time to decamp to Colorado. Okay, so why Colorado Springs? Well, even when headed out to the frontier, Tesla, grown accustomed to the finer things in life, couldn't be without at least some luxuries. Tesla was the original glamper. Colorado Springs was founded in 1871 as a posh mountain resort that, with its scenic natural beauty, high altitude, it's 6,000 feet above sea level, dry climate, and fluoride-rich waters, attracted a well-to-do clientele seeking relief from a variety of ailments, including tuberculosis. Nearby gold mines had also produced a number of millionaires who built fine homes in Colorado Springs. Yeah, okay, but why Colorado Springs? Bankrolled by Astor, Tesla could have picked anywhere he wanted. Well, at least one newspaper report suggests Tesla made a brief visit to Colorado Springs in 1896 to conduct a few wireless experiments, so he had at least been there before. With the town situated at the foothills of the Rockies, one wonders if Colorado Springs would have reminded Tesla of his childhood home in Smilion. The immediate cause for his choice of the town, however, might have been the invitation of Leonard E. Curtis, a partner of Tesla's patent attorney, who himself had moved to Colorado Springs for his health. 
He suggested Tesla could make use of Colorado's wide-open spaces to safely perform experiments he couldn't contemplate in New York. Tesla seemed to agree. My coils in New York are producing 4 million volts, Tesla told Curtis in a letter, and sparks jumping from walls to ceilings are a fire hazard. And an elevation of 6,000 feet meant Tesla could begin to grapple with how currents were conducted through both the Earth's crust and the atmosphere at high altitude. Plus, Colorado Springs was almost 1,800 miles away from the New York press that had begun to turn on Tesla, so there was that to factor in, too. Intrigued by the invitation, Tesla laid out his needs to Curtis. This is a secret test, said Tesla. I must have electrical power, water, and my own laboratory. I will need a good carpenter who will follow instructions. My work will be done late at night when the power load will be leased. Curtis arranged everything, including free power from the local electrical utility, the El Paso Power Company. On his way to Colorado Springs, Tesla stopped in Chicago to lecture before the Commercial Club, home of the city's business elite. While the high point of the lecture was a demonstration of his radio-controlled boat, Tesla also outlined his plans to broadcast power, signal Mars, and use electricity to convert atmospheric nitrogen into cheap, abundant fertilizer. Interviewed by the Chicago Times-Herald, Tesla took the opportunity to explain the difference between himself and Marconi, again, without mentioning his rival by name. While Marconi was pursuing mere applications for money, Tesla argued, in keeping with his nature as an idealist inventor, he was seeking the underlying principles of his new technology. What I am doing is to develop a new art, he told the interviewer. Is that not more important than the attempt to elaborate an old art in some of its phases? I want to go down to posterity as the founder of a new method of communication. I do not care for practical results in the immediate present. Where I have time, I stop to develop the application of the principles that I have announced but that is part of the work which it is usually safe to leave to others. They will do it because there is money in it. For myself, I am content to find the new principles through the knowledge of which the applications become possible. Departing Chicago by train, Tesla arrived in Colorado Springs on Thursday, the 18th of May, 1899. He was met at the station by Curtis and a few local dignitaries. A horse and carriage took him to his hotel, the Alta Vista, where he stayed in room 207, another hotel room divisible by number 3 in this case by the number 69, 6, and 9, also, of course, divisible by 3. No sooner had he reached his hotel than he was cornered by a reporter asking about his plans for his time in Colorado Springs. I propose to send a message from Pikes Peak to Paris, promised Tesla. I see no reason why I should keep the thing a secret longer. I have been preparing for a long while to come here and carry on these experiments, which have been so much to me. I am here to work out a system of transmission at a distance. I propose to propagate electrical disturbances without wires. The inventor was feted at a banquet in his honor, sponsored by Curtis, at the El Paso Club. Well known throughout the region because of his AC power transmission system that had been adopted at lead, silver, and gold mines in such camps as Telluride, which we mentioned way back in episode 18, Tesla was introduced to society people, town officials, and even the governor of Colorado. With the social calls out of the way, Tesla's first order of business in Colorado Springs was the construction of an experimental station. Seven miles east of town, located on an empty pasture known as Knob Hill, the station was positioned between the State Deaf and Blind Institute and the Printer's Union Home. While the experimental station no longer exists, its location was basically at the intersection of East Kiowa and North Foot Streets, near Memorial Park in modern-day Colorado Springs. I'm also told that the city bus that runs along there is not only an electric bus, but that it is wrapped in a Tesla-themed sticker, showing a famous photo of Tesla sitting calmly amidst the electrical storm caused by the giant magnifying transmitter in his experimental station. Keep that photo in mind, we'll talk about it more next episode. According to W. Bernard Carlson, the experimental station was built by a local carpenter, Joseph Dozier, 
and was a 60 by 70 foot wooden barn consisting of one large open space and two small offices on the front. Over the main space there was a roof that could be opened and closed, as well as a balcony for viewing the countryside. A view on a clear day stretched virtually to Wyoming to the north and New Mexico to the south, and it was common to witness lightning storms in the distance while you yourself were standing in sunshine. John J. O'Neill, in his biography of Tesla, Prodigal Genius, makes a somewhat grander assessment of the experimental station. In his telling, the station was, quote, almost square-like barn structure nearly 100 feet on each side. The sides were 25 feet high, and from them the roof sloped upward toward the center. From the middle of the roof rose a skeleton pyramidal tower made of wood. The top of this tower was nearly 80 feet above the ground. Extensions of the slanting roof beams extended outward to the ground to serve as flying buttresses to reinforce the tower. Through the center of the tower extended a mast nearly 200 feet high, at the top of which was mounted a copper ball about 3 feet in diameter. The mast carried a heavy wire connecting the ball with the apparatus in the laboratory. The mast was arranged in sections so that it could be disjointed and lowered. Tesla's initial plan for cabling across the Atlantic was to eventually erect two terminal stations, one in London and one in New York, with one of his oscillators placed at the top of each tower, communicating via giant disks suspended in captive balloons floating 5,000 feet above the Earth to flash messages back and forth in an instant through what we would now call the ionosphere. So his first set of experiments were to be the transmission of very high frequencies up long wires to terminals situated two miles in the sky. Helium-filled balloons more than 10 feet long were ordered from a balloon company in Germany, and thousands of feet of wire and cable were shipped from the Houston Street lab. However, Tesla soon realized that existing balloons couldn't lift the weight of hundreds of feet of wire. Instead, Tesla designed that telescoping mast O'Neill mentioned, one that could hoist a 30-inch copper-covered ball to a height of 142 feet. To stabilize the mast, Tesla added a 25-foot tower to the roof of the station. There was also a smaller tower with a hanging metal ball used to measure how capacitance varied with distance from the Earth. Despite the imposing structure he'd built, Tesla's primary concern was secrecy. There was a single window in the station, but when local boys kept peeking through it, Tesla had it boarded up. There was also a fence built around the whole station, with signs reading, Keep out! Great danger! And a quote from Dante's Inferno added by one of Tesla's assistants. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Tesla was joined in Colorado Springs by assistants who came from his New York laboratory. First, Fritz Lowenstein, who went back to New York in the fall of 1899, and who was then replaced by Coleman Sito. Tesla also hired a local teenager, Richard B. Gregg, whose father knew Curtis. Under Tesla's direction, Lowenstein and Gregg built an enormous magnifying transmitter. In the station's main room, they constructed a circular wooden wall about 6 feet high and 49 feet in diameter. Around the top of this wall, they wound two turns of thick cable in order to create the primary winding of the transmitter. In the center of the room, they built the secondary coil using a hundred turns of finer wire. One end of this secondary coil could be connected to either a spherical terminal inside the laboratory or the copper ball atop the mast while the other end was grounded. To power the transmitter, Tesla tapped into the AC power that ran the streetcar line that stopped just at the edge of the Knob Hill Prairie and converted that incoming current to 20,000 or 40,000 volts as needed. Perhaps Tesla should have affixed one of those great danger keep-out signs to the inside of his experimental station too, because there was danger aplenty for those inside the building as well as outside. In his 1919 article, Can Radio Ignite Balloons?, Tesla describes the great danger associated with his experiments in Colorado Springs, admitting that, quote, fires of all kinds and explosions can be produced by wireless transmitters, he recounted causing such a fire where he was forced to crawl to safety and was lucky to not have burned down his entire lab. 
In late June and early July, Tesla began making observations of whether the Earth possessed a natural electrical potential or charge, and doing so for the first time free of the electrical interference that was already ubiquitous in New York due to the sea of telegraphy, telephony, lighting, and power lines. If it turned out that the Earth had no charge, Tesla would have to use his magnifying transmitter to introduce a tremendous amount of power into the Earth in order to make it vibrate electrically and transmit power over distances. I'm not going to go into the details of the apparatus Tesla designed to measure the Earth's electrical potential. Just think of it as sort of like a seismograph, but instead of measuring and recording earthquakes, it did so for high voltage. Using this device, a coherer, Tesla found that, quote, the Earth was literally alive with electrical vibrations. He noticed that his receivers were more strongly affected by lightning strikes that were part of far-off thunderstorms than they were by lightning from nearby storms. One such claim is made by John J. O'Neill in his biography of Tesla, Prodigal Genius. I've mentioned the issues with this book in the past, and I won't rehash them here. Instead, I will let O'Neill's prose speak for itself, and, well, you can make up your own mind as to his reliability. Quote, The gods of the natural lightning may have become a bit jealous of this individual who was undertaking to steal their thunder, as Prometheus had stolen fire, and sought to punish him by wrecking his fantastic-looking structure. It was badly damaged and narrowly escaped destruction by a bolt of lightning, not one that had made a direct hit but one that struck ten miles away. The blast hit the laboratory at the exact time to the split second that Tesla predicted it would. It was caused by a tidal wave of air coming from a particular type of lightning discharge. Tesla tells the story in an unpublished report. He stated, I have had many opportunities for checking this value by observation of explosions and lightning discharges. An ideal case of this kind presented itself at Colorado Springs in July 1899 while I was carrying on tests with my broadcasting power station, which was the only wireless plant in existence at that time. A heavy cloud had gathered over Pikes Peak Range, and suddenly lightning struck at a point just ten miles away. I timed the flash instantly, and upon making a quick computation told my assistants that the tidal wave would arrive in 48.5 seconds. Exactly with the lapse of this time interval, a terrific blow struck the building which might have been thrown off the foundation had it not been strongly braced. All the windows on one side and a door were demolished and much damage done in the interior. Taking into account the energy of electric discharge and its duration, as well as that of an explosion, I estimated that the concussion was about equivalent to what might have been produced at that distance by the ignition of twelve tons of dynamite. End quote. Whatever you make of O'Neill's account, the fact that his instrumentation was more affected by far-off storms was a genuine puzzler for Tesla, since common sense would make you think that closer strikes would be picked up more powerfully by the receiver and not strikes farther away. Then, one night, as he walked back to the hotel with Lowenstein, it came to him. Stationary waves. The more distant lightning strikes could register more powerfully if the lightning bolts set up stationary waves in the Earth's crust. Okay, but what's a stationary wave? When you were a kid, did you ever tie one end of a skipping rope to a fence? Well, if you flicked that rope up and down and sent a wave down the length of the rope to the fence and then the wave traveled back from the fence to your hand, that's a simple kind of stationary wave. A true stationary wave that we're talking about here would happen if, in addition to flicking the rope, you also managed to tune the vibration you were introducing so that it matched the resonant frequency of the rope itself. Then the two waves, one going from your hand to the fence and the second from the fence back to your hand, would essentially sync up such that even though you were still flicking the rope up and down, the waveform the skipping rope made, its peaks and valleys, would look like they were standing still. Tesla reasoned that the lightning strikes triggered an electromagnetic wave in the Earth's crust that reflected back on itself to create a stationary wave. 
Tesla had originally considered this possibility that electromagnetic stationary waves might be set up in the Earth as far back as 1893 when preparing for his lecture before the Franklin Institute. At the time, however, he dismissed the idea as impossible. Now, in Colorado, he'd proved himself wrong. And on July 3, 1899, during a spectacular thunderstorm, Tesla got a chance to confirm his hunch. A massive, violent thunderstorm broke out in the mountains to the west, passed over Colorado Springs, and then moved quickly east onto the plains. According to Tesla, the storm produced no less than 10 to 12,000 lightning strikes inside of two hours. Many of the bolts showed 10 or 20 branches. The flashing was almost continuous, and even later in the night when the storm had calmed down, 15 to 20 discharges per minute were still visible. Using his coherer device connected to the ground, Tesla rigged a telegraph relay to sound at each lightning strike. Though not even adjusted for peak sensitivity, the relay began to tap out its measurements when the storm was still 80 to 100 miles away, an estimate Tesla based on measuring the intervals between thunderclaps. Just imagine Tesla and his assistants standing around the experimental station counting 1 Mississippi, 2 Mississippi, 3 Mississippi. As the storm, tracking west to east, passed overhead, they actually had to adjust the sensitivity of the telegraph relay downward to make it less sensitive, because it was recording so many lightning strikes they worried the springs would break and destroy the machine. Tesla also rigged up a second instrument to measure the lightning, based on a design used by Russian physicist Alexander Popov in 1895. Tesla attached an electric doorbell connected to the earth and to an elevated terminal in the station so that the bell rang in response to each lightning discharge. Imagine the cacophony in the experimental station between the peals of thunder a telegraph relay hammering away like a pair of those wind-up chattering teeth and an electric doorbell ringing non-stop. Popov's machine, Tesla added a visual element, a small spark gap that arced whenever lightning struck. To get a sense of the strength of the current passing between the ground and the terminal, Tesla held his hand across the gap to feel the shock that came with each lightning stroke because... because of course he did. But as the storm receded, Tesla later recorded, the most interesting and valuable observation was made. As the storm moved away east, Tesla retuned his coherer, quote, to be more sensitive and to respond readily to every discharge which was seen or heard. Tesla then goes on, quote, It responded for a while, when it stopped. It was thought that the lightning was now too far, and it may have been about 50 miles away. All of a sudden, the instrument began again to play, continuously increasing in strength, although the storm was moving away rapidly. After some time, the indications again ceased, but half an hour later, the instrument began to record again. When it once more ceased, the adjustment was rendered more delicate, in fact very considerably so, still the instrument failed to respond, but half an hour or so, it again began to play, and now the spring was tightened on the relay very much, and still it indicated the discharges. By this time, the storm had moved away far out of sight. By readjusting the instrument and setting it again so as to be very sensitive, after some time, it again began to play periodically. The storm was now at a distance of greater than 200 miles at least. Later in the evening, repeatedly, the instrument played and ceased to play in intervals of nearly half an hour, although most of the horizon was clear by that time. From this, Tesla concluded that he was observing stationary electromagnetic waves. He reasoned that the lightning strikes set off an electromagnetic wave in the Earth's crust that then reflected back on itself every 30 minutes to create the stationary wave. Tesla was not certain where the waves were reflected. It would be difficult to believe that they were reflected from the opposite point of the Earth's surface, though it may be possible, he observed. 
but I rather think that they are reflected from the point of the cloud where the conducting path began. In this case, the point where the lightning struck the ground would be a nodal point. Since this nodal point would change as the storm continued to move while Tesla's receiver stayed in one place, Tesla reasoned that the receiver would respond during those intervals in which a peak of the stationary wave passed through the ground underneath the receiver. And later experimental results by, of all things, the U.S. Navy, suggests that Tesla had, in fact, detected stationary waves produced by lightning storms. The Navy's findings confirmed that Tesla's observations were based on an actual physical phenomenon. By using extremely low-frequency waves, ELF, the U.S. Navy discovered that it is possible to set up stationary electromagnetic waves, not necessarily in the Earth's crust, but between the ionosphere and the Earth's surface, in what is called the Schumann cavity. They also found that stationary waves can penetrate deep into the ocean, which is how from the 1980s through 2004, the U.S. Navy maintained radio contact with its nuclear submarines. To transmit the ELF signals, the Navy uses an underground antenna 28 miles long. An ELF signal is considered anything under 30 hertz, and unfortunately these frequencies are also the ones that were later discovered to screw up the behavior of whales, leading to collisions with boats and ships, and with whales becoming disoriented and beaching themselves. So the U.S. Navy brought in regulations about when and where such frequencies could be used for communication. I think the jury is still out on the success of such rules. In any case, Tesla regarded the discovery of stationary electromagnetic waves to be of immense importance. It was on the 3rd of July, 1899, the date I shall never forget, Tesla later wrote, when I obtained the first decisive experimental evidence of a truth of overwhelming importance for the advancement of humanity. Never one to be subtle, was he? In his notebook for the day, Tesla wrote, quote, It is now certain that they can be produced with an oscillator, and then added in brackets, This is of immense importance. Tesla also wrote to George Sheriff, who was holding down the fort back in New York. We have just about finished all the details, Tesla told him. My work is really to begin in earnest right now. For Tesla, this discovery meant that the Earth was dynamically, electrically charged, not the vast, calm reservoir of energy he'd previously believed it to be. In the reservoir model, Electromagnetic waves, such as those produced by lightning, would behave much in the same way as waves created by a stone dropped in a body of water, strong where the rock hit the water, and then dissipating in concentric circles. Power wouldn't travel very far in that case. But the existence of stationary waves suggested to Tesla that, instead, the Earth behaved like a, quote, conductor of limited dimensions, and that much in the same way stationary waves could be set up by lightning, Tesla now believed he could produce low-frequency waves using his oscillator. For Tesla, this discovery meant the system would have far greater reach than the upstart Marconi's little apparatus. Marconi might have sent messages across the English Channel, but Tesla was convinced he could send them around the world, and power too. Not only was it practicable to send telegraphic messages to any distance without wires, Tesla later wrote, but also to impress upon the entire globe the faint modulations of the human voice, and far more still to transmit power in unlimited amounts to any terrestrial distance and almost without loss. I'm struck here by the parallels Tesla must have seen between his worldwide system and Marconi's limited wireless telegraph, and the advantages that Tesla's AC system had in sending power great distances over Edison's DC system. Did Tesla expect a second war of the currents to break out over wireless? If he did, based on how the first one had played out and what he now believed the possibilities for his world wireless system to be, he must surely have thought that he'd be victorious in this war, too. Tesla spent the next few months tracking lightning storms to determine how far his transmitter should reach. This I did, he explained, 
by comparison with lightning discharges which occurred almost every day, and which permitted me to determine the effect of my transmitter, and to ascertain experimentally the energy which it was capable of transmitting, as compared with that energy which was transmitted from a certain great distance by a lightning discharge. These I could follow up to distances of many hundreds of miles, and I could at any time tell precisely how much of a fraction of a watt I would obtain with my transmitter in a circuit situated at any point of the globe. The energy ascertained by measurement agreed exactly with that determined by calculation. Tesla assumed that if a storm could transmit so much power over such and such a distance, there should be no problem in using his transmitter to send power over the same distance. With these stupendous possibilities in sight, wrote Tesla, I attacked vigorously the development of my magnifying transmitter, now, however, not so much with the original intention of producing one of great power, as with the object of learning how to construct the best one. But before he could do that, his instruments detected another interesting set of signals. And those signals... We'll have to wait until next time. Because while in Colorado, Tesla was at his peak as a creative experimenter. But it was his overconfidence in the ideal system that he had built in his imagination that got in the way of him rigorously testing his ideas and collecting the hard evidence he would need to prove that his system worked. Convinced beforehand of the correctness of his ideal system, Tesla pounced on the first hints of success, which turned out to be illusions, rather than confront actual problems and challenges that come from taking an idea from the imagination into the real world. So, next time, we'll learn about the signals Tesla thought he was receiving, and we'll hear how one of the most famous photos of Tesla turns out to have been one of history's first deepfakes. Thanks for listening to Tesla The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it too, or share a link to the show on your social media. And please remember to leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Past episodes, as well as the show notes for this episode, can be found on our website, teslapodcast.com. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at As I mentioned, I'm no longer on Twitter, but if anybody listening out there has a Blue Sky account and has a code that they could send me, uh, holler at your boy, tesla at Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowich.